Hey everyone, welcome to Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. I'm your host, Vaz Zaidi, and today we're going to be interviewing an interventional cardiologist about his experiences with COVID-19 and the effects that COVID can have on people with pre-existing conditions. So, let's go to the interview. I'm uh, Dr. Babur Sharif. I'm a cardiologist uh, with privileges at Longwood Regional Medical Center in Fort Pierce, Florida, and Cleveland Clinic Tradition Hospital in Port St. Lucie, Florida, and also at uh, Cleveland Clinic Indian River Medical Center at, uh, in Vero Beach, Florida. So I go to these three hospitals. A cardiologist by professions, and I'm an interventional cardiologist uh, performing uh, interventions. Hi, Dr. Sharif. Um, so can you give like a brief description of your job and what you do on like an average day? Sure. Uh, as I'm an interventional cardiologist, I'm involved in uh, treating patients uh, who need interventions uh, when they come in with a heart attack or have uh, blockages in the arteries. You know, I do stents and angioplasties. Uh, also, I, I deal with patients uh, in the office, not as much anymore because we are doing a lot of televisits, you know, on the phone or um, via video. Uh, of course, in the hospital, we see patients who are admitted to the hospital, and I also perform procedures like uh, stress testing and uh, echocardiography, including transesophageal echocardiograms. Uh, so I'm kind of um, involved in uh, almost all the procedures that um, patients with heart problems uh, undergo. I only thing I don't do is like pacemakers. Okay, so... Have you had to deal with any COVID patients yet? And when you dealt with them, like what precautions did you take? Well, you know, we have learned lately and especially in the last few weeks that uh, you treat every patient like they have COVID unless proven otherwise. The reason for that is there have been some patients who initially tested negative for COVID and then tested positive two, three days later. So that was kind of a surprise to us. And unfortunately, there's also different tests being used in different hospitals. So sometimes they have a test called the rapid test. We get the results back in two hours. And if patients are waiting for procedures, you can't wait for days to get the results back. So usually go with the rapid test. And if it's negative, you go ahead and do the procedure. But we are finding out that the other test, which is the confirmatory test using a different method, the PCR, uh, we do that. That takes 24 to 48 hours in certain times, uh, certain places taking almost a week that came back positive. So that was kind of a, a learning lesson for us that you cannot rely on the tests alone. Of course, you look at the patient too. If they're symptomatic, they have fever, any suspicion of a COVID uh, you know, infection, we just uh, delay the case if we can or take all the necessary precautions. Now, in terms of what has changed when we do the procedures, uh, of course, you know, before the COVID, you know, I would walk into any procedure and just put on a cap and a mask and a gown and just do it. But now, in addition to that, the, the, for example, if I'm doing a cat or doing a transesophageal echo, so you have a gown, of course, on top. You have at least maybe a, a two pairs of gloves, and then you wear an N95 mask, which I'm sure you have heard of that. And on over that, uh, you know, we can have a face shield uh, because I wear glasses. I also cover my glasses with um, 
you know, shield the glasses also. So there are like two, three layers we have. And N95, as you know, is protective, almost like 95%. The face shield helps if a patient is coughing or sneezing, you don't have a huge uh, droplet, uh, you know, dose uh, hitting at your face. And of course, you know, you washing hands is extremely important. Uh, we wash hands before, we wash, wash hands when we're taking off for what we call the PPE, I'm sure you know that. And uh, you wash hands after. We try very hard not to touch our face, you know, as much as we can because there's tendency, you know, you know uh, to touch your face. So we try very hard not to do that anymore. Okay, so besides basic masks and social distancing, what other big changes have been made in your hospital, in surgeries or administratively, etc.? Well, in terms of cardiology procedures, uh, we trying to delay or not do any elective procedures that can wait. For example, a patient has uh, uh, some issue that we can wait for a couple of months. We are not doing those procedures. So we're trying to avoid elective procedures. Now, if there are emergency procedures that have to be done immediately, uh, we take all the precautions that I just mentioned and just do the procedure because, of course, remember, uh, you know, most of the times when patients come with a heart attack, you cannot wait. So we end up taking all the precautions and getting done with those procedures. And there are certain procedures which are, you know, involving the aerodigestive system. So example, you know, if I'm doing a transesophageal echo, it's considered a higher risk because involving the, uh, your airways, your digestive system. In those cases, the whole, you know, team is uh, wearing PPE and we disinfect the room room at the, at the end of the procedure. And if we have cases, uh, uh, other cases, non-COVID, we try to do them first. We may leave the COVID cases for the end of the day. So after that, you disinfect the room and then at least you have several hours, you know, by the next morning to have uh, the, uh, the next morning cases. So those are the precautions we are taking, of course. Now getting a little bit more specific to the cardiovascular system. Um, what effects, if any, have been seen from COVID on the cardiovascular system? You know, uh, there is, uh, it's difficult for us to make a precise diagnosis that the patients coming in with the heart conditions are from COVID. For example, if somebody comes in with uh, heart failure, now there could be many reasons for that. And one of the reasons could be COVID. So we do have COVID in the back of our minds, but it's very difficult to prove right now because that patient could have had heart failure for other reasons too. But COVID is definitely in the differential diagnosis. And if a patient has COVID positive uh, you know, uh, by any test, we treat that patient like they have had the cardiology problem because of COVID. For example, I had a patient with heart failure the other day. You know, we are treating him like he probably got a heart failure from COVID because he was a young person, had no risk factors. You know, so that, that is presumptive diagnosis. There's no way to definitely prove that. Now, there could be, um, you know, other cases, for example, somebody coming with a heart attack, somebody coming with a, uh, uh, with a pulmonary embolism, somebody coming with uh, arrhythmias. They could all be the consequences, not directly from COVID effect on the heart, but from other reasons. For example, as you probably know, the COVID patients are, are higher uh, risk for forming blood clots, you know, just from the infection itself. And those blood clots could be in the heart, the arteries of the heart. 
the COVID patients have a lot of inflammation and that could be again, you know, inflammation of the heart muscle. So it's more of a, uh, each, each case, case by case uh, situation where we may have a presumptive diagnosis that these cases are because of COVID and if there was no COVID infection, they may not have had that problem. And when you look at patients who have pre-existing conditions, what have you like seen and what conditions seem to be the, the worst for getting COVID? In, in my, of course, you know, you know the data you know, anybody with diabetes, hypertension, obesity, you know, lung disease, asthma, uh, those are the known, you know, risk factors, uh, an elderly population, of course. But of course, in my own population, I have seen patients with uh, diabetes and COPD and also to a certain extent hypertension. They seem to be at a higher risk. And one thing I've also noticed in my selection of cases, the obese patients seem to be more affected and they seem to be, for some reason, have more of morbidity, even compared to patients with, uh, you know, who are not obese but have diabetes. So first, that's kind of seems to be sticking out. Um, so what's been the biggest challenge for you and your, and your hospital when you've been dealing with COVID-19 so far? Well, I think trying to take the precautions, trying to figure out how to, uh, you know, kind of um, have the least exposure with each and every patient. Because we see patients in different floors with different conditions and different procedures. So you have to be cognizant every time you're seeing a patient, look at the, each patient and see what precautions we have to take. And I think the key is trying to expose yourself the least you can, and, but still kind of make sure the patient gets the appropriate treatment. Of course, the hospital, you know, for them, it's the keeping the, the, the uh, supplies, you know, uh, keeping up with the supplies, because you can imagine how many masks are being used each day in the hospital, how many shields are being used. Also, I think if any certain area, the number of uh, specialized nurses, you know, there's only a few of them. And if, if, if a couple of them get the infection, then the staffing becomes an issue. So that's, I think, from a hospital perspective, protecting the staff is key for them because if you have certain critical mass getting COVID infection, then you can imagine what's going to happen to the uh, provision of those particular services. That's a really good insight into how hospitals kind of operate during this time. So now, what do you think is the most important part of society and hospitals fighting this virus? Well, I think uh, some some... Some things have been proven already, I think. I'm sure, you know, you have discussed with your other guests, you know, uh, social distancing, you know, wearing masks, hand washing, uh, trying to avoid, you know, places where, you know, the chances of infection, getting infected are high. Uh, So those are the things that we as citizens can do. Of course, the hospital, you know, in in terms of uh, what they can do for us is providing uh, the staff with PPE, have adequate supplies of the PPE, uh, also restricting the patient families from coming in unless absolutely necessary. Uh, the less the number of people in the hospital, uh, the better for the hospital. Uh, so I, I, I think, and also providing uh, uh, the information needed for us to for, treat these patients. I'm talking about the testing. Uh, the faster the results come back, 
for us, the better we are prepared. So the hospital, I think, is trying, you know, to get the testing done in a rapid fashion, get the results back to us, and also kind of choosing tests that don't have too many false negatives or false positives. And I think most of the hospitals are doing a very good job with that, at least now. You know, in the beginning, it was very tough, but now I think uh, I have not had any issues getting enough uh, N95 masks or shields or, or uh, you know, uh, masks and stuff like that. Um, and so now kind of moving on to like you as like a doctor. So what precautions do you and your family take with you living in such a high risk environment? Well, <laughs> that's uh, also draining. So you basically, you uh, when you come home, you know, first thing you do is make sure you take off all the clothes and go and take a, take a shower and, 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 and do the best you can to kind of not get in touch, uh, contact, uh, get in touch with the uh, contact with those uh, uh, clothes that I'm wearing, which could be infected with the virus. And, uh, you know, trying to also myself, you know, doing some social distancing at home. I'm kind of in, in a one corner of the house, uh, you know, just to, you know, because the problem is unless you keep getting tested every other day, you have no idea if you're carrying it. Uh, so that has been somewhat draining mentally uh, to be doing that, you know, and especially with uh, the kids being home now, this is a good opportunity to mingle with them. <laughs> but to maintain that distance, I, I think it's, uh, it's something that kind of uh, not easy. Thank you for that in-depth look at like doctors' kind of daily lives. So now some of the listeners have questions. The first one is, how do you think the U.S. can be prepared for a pandemic in the future? Uh, well, <laughs> there are a lot of lessons to be learned from this experience, I guess. And um, without getting into the politics of it, I think uh, it's good to have scientific bodies and scientific organizations uh, that deal specifically with pandemics. You know, be it the preparedness has to be uh, uh, you know, done by organizations or, or scientific bodies that have expertise in it. And I think some of this was expected, as you know, uh, from some experts. I think uh, some of the um, uh, organizations like CDC and, and, and uh, NIH, I think they probably should be, have good funding for something like this. Uh, also, I think lessons could be learned from other countries each i mean the countries can learn from each other i'm saying you know there's no one way of doing it if somebody has uh, had a better response to this i think we can learn from them and vice versa so i think this has taught us a lot in terms of uh, being prepared uh, the supplies as you remember was a big issue right when this hit us you know a few months ago march april there was a concern that we don't even have enough N95s for the medical staff. Uh, that seems to have improved. Uh, so I'm hopefully moving forward, we'll have enough funding for scientific bodies that deal specifically with pandemics because this may not be the end of it, you know. Uh, the next was, uh, what impacts do you believe that COVID will have on society even after the pandemic is over? I think, this is my personal view. I think unless we are sure that the risk of infection is low, uh, which you know probably would not happen unless we have a good effective vaccine, 
or there are good treatments if one gets infected, I think the public in general will not be confident uh, in going back to what it used to be before COVID-19, whether it's talking about going to uh, you know, restaurants or public spaces. Um, uh, the, the businesses will not, will not come back to where they were, I think, unless we have a general sense that we are safe going out. Uh, so it might, you know, hoping, we are hoping, we all are hoping that we'll have vaccines and good treatments in the, in the, in the near future. And that to me, I think, um, uh, will probably be the two important things that will probably make us comfortable going back to what we were before. Yes. The next question is actually about the vaccine. And many people are thinking that it's going to put sort of an end to the pandemic. And do you believe that? And if not, like, what effects do you think the, the vaccine will actually have on the virus? Well, I guess it's not that, it's pretty complicated, I think. It's not that simple. You know, first of all, the vaccine has to be, you know, effective. Uh, number two, it has to be in enough supplies of that for a majority of the population to get it, not only in the U.S., in other countries too. Number three, the side effects of the vaccine. You know, there's few, some segments of, the population are against vaccination. So I think it's, uh, plus we don't know uh, in terms of pricing what the, uh, the pricing of the vaccination would be. So I think all those factors have to, be, uh, have to play out before we can say that, you know, this is going to, you know, basically put an end to this problem. And as you can see, it's a moving target. Uh, some companies ahead today, another company is, you know, ahead tomorrow in terms of their clinical trials phase two or phase three. So to me, I think it's, it's a matter of, it, it's going to be, it's going to play out in the next few months, I think, but uh, it, it's something that, that needs to be um, uh, followed, but it, it's very difficult to say right now, which vaccine, which company, supplies, pricing, what's that, that's going to be like. Okay, well, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. If you have any questions, make sure to put them in the Google form below, and I'll see you next week.